Hi, my name is Belle Yoeli, AJC's Chief Advocacy Officer. Nothing could have prepared us for the horrors of October 7th or the tidal wave of anti-Semitic hate that followed, but we cannot allow our pain to paralyze us. Fight for a brighter future for Israel and the Jewish people by supporting AJC. To support our work today, you can visit ajc.org donate, or you can text AJC donate to 52886. That's AJC space donate to 52886. Thank you, and Am Yisrael Chai. Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Since the Hamas terror attacks on Israel on October 7th, the Shoah Foundation has added a new component to its mission, collecting the testimonies of those who survived the worst anti-Semitic attack since the Holocaust to counter those who dare to deny it took place. Dr. Robert Williams is the advisor to the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, where he served for four years as chair of the Committee on Anti-Semitism and Holocaust Denial. In October 2022, he became the executive director of the USC Shoah Foundation. Dr. Williams is with us now to discuss the history and tendency to deny atrocities, in this case, those committed against Jews. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Williams. If you could begin by explaining to listeners what Holocaust denial is and how it's similar or different from Holocaust trivialization or distortion. Holocaust denial is easier for us to wrap our heads around for better or worse. You know, a Holocaust denier is essentially trying to tell people that the Holocaust didn't happen for one of two reasons. The most obvious reason is because they're anti-Semitic. They want to tell people that the Jewish diaspora writ large has come together to invent this grand conspiracy to pull the wool over the eyes of non-Jews for all manner of dastardly purposes. So that's the first reason. The second reason is also anti-Semitic, although in a slightly different way, that is to rehabilitate national socialism as an acceptable ideology. No matter which way you slice that cake, it still ends up being anti-Semitism. That's why, to echo the words of people like Deborah Lipstadt and others, Holocaust denial is anti-Semitism, full stop. And it's a problem. It's something we need to deal with. But in our parts of the world, roughly speaking, the Northern Hemisphere, the West, it's become fortunately, a, a bit of a micro-phenomenon over the last couple of decades. The bigger problem is the second part of your question, Holocaust distortion. Now, I, I use the terms trivialization and distortion and interchangeably. I prefer to use distortion. But Holocaust distortion is, in essence, rhetoric that minimizes, confuses, or otherwise misrepresents the Holocaust both as something factual and something that has relevance today. And that can take on a variety of forms. It can be something obvious like minimizing the number of victims to something that's a little less obvious like figure skaters dressing up like concentration camp victims for their routines. Now, distortion also brings with it a challenge. 
Is somebody distorting because they're cynical anti-Semites? Sometimes the answer is yes. Other times, distortion of the Holocaust happens because people don't know the facts, or they think they know the facts and they don't, and they end up saying the wrong thing. But again, the end result, no matter the motivation, becomes problematic. Because if you are misrepresenting the Holocaust, you are effectively doing two things. On an ethical plane, you are disrespecting the memories of the victims and the survivors, and that's wrong. And on a practical plane, you are opening the door. I like to say Holocaust distortion kind of acts like a gateway drug to outright denial, to conspiracy thinking, and to more dangerous forms of anti-Semitism. So you have to tackle distortion, but you tackle distortion often in ways different from that of denial. But rather than focus on the word Holocaust, I want to focus on the word denial. I mean, you mentioned Deborah Lipstadt, for example, and she recently expressed concern that people are denying that Hamas committed so many heinous crimes on October 7th. Is this a phenomenon, this denial of atrocities? Do you see it more applying to atrocities against Jews, or have we seen it in other instances? Well, we've certainly seen it in other cases of mass crimes and genocides. One of the most prominent cases that predates the Holocaust is denial of the genocide of the Armenian people in the early 20th century, something that persists in certain parts of the world and is part of official state policy in some countries. Denial of the Armenian genocide is problematic for a whole host of reasons. First, again, it's immoral vis-a-vis the victims and survivors of that particular genocide to deny their experience, to say it never happened, to minimize it. It also has inhibited global understanding of Armenian life history and culture since the genocide happened. So denial of mass atrocity crimes is something quite common. When it comes to the denial of crimes against the Jewish people, You do see this over and over and over again, though. You see either excuses for the various pogroms that have claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands of Jews over the centuries, or an attempt to minimize it, or an attempt to suppress that history. And that's separate from the denial and suppression of Holocaust history that we've seen through time. And we have seen, not just in the case of the October 7th attacks, but denial of other atrocities that were carried out against Jews through various forms of anti-Semitic terror violence. But we've definitely begun paying attention to it after October 7th, in part due to the scale. You know, the largest act of anti-Semitic violence against the Jewish people since 1945 in the one place where it was never supposed to happen. People were supposed to be safe. And the international community, you know, you're used to seeing these claims that of exaggeration or outright denial from certain countries in the Middle East or North Africa. But this has become widespread. Think within, was it a week, nine days after that horrible series of attacks, with people asking to see photographs of the murdered children because they didn't believe it. So engaging in very dangerous, I would say almost pornographic rhetoric about violence against the most innocent among us and engaging in it in a way that encourages denial, encourages doubting the veracity of these crimes, or, and we've seen this in other corners as well since October 7th, rhetoric that in turn moves from denial to outright justification for the atrocities that have been committed. It's very tricky. 
It's not black and white, unfortunately. Does social media amplify Holocaust denial? And are we seeing that same trend now with the October 7th attacks? You talk about it being a post-truth world. Yeah, I absolutely think that's the case. Although I will say outright denial on social media, again, it's there, it's a problem, but it's less common than distortion and intentional manipulation. Even the term Holocaust distortion is potentially problematic. We're probably better served calling it Holocaust disinformation. And I think we're seeing some of the same dynamics at play in the post-October 7th discussions that we see in online fora, including closed forums in places like Telegram or Gab or Discord, as well as in more public-facing ones like X and Instagram and threads. Before we leave the topic of denial and move on to distortion, because I, I do want to explore that a little bit more, I do want to ask about the role of Holocaust denial in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Palestinian authority leader Mahmoud Abbas, he wrote his dissertation at the University of Moscow denying the Holocaust happened to the Jews, that it was more of a product of the Jews' collusion with the Nazis. Is that a belief that is, is common among Palestinians or pro-Palestinian supporters? And what role does that piece of disinformation play in exacerbating the sentiments? There's a lot to unpack in that question. I'm going to start with the caveat that I'm, I'm a specialist on Europe, not a specialist on the Middle East. So a lot of my understanding of dynamics around distortion and denial among non-Israeli Palestinians is anecdotal and based on secondary literature. But it does seem that there is a current of, in some parts of Palestinian culture, where denial of the Holocaust is known to the degrees to which it's accepted, probably vary from time and place. And it makes a certain amount of sense. Because if you can deny the reality of the Holocaust, you can then point to the state of Israel and say, the Jewish people have never been victims. We're the eternal victim. It's much easier to be a victim when you're in a complex political world anyway. The more interesting thing are the origins of the Abbas dissertation and how it's managed to spread across at least the Arabic-speaking and Persian-speaking worlds. To a certain degree, it's something that has been generated in Muslim society. But as scholars like Jeffrey Herf have shown, certain elements of anti-Semitism spread from Europe, in the case of Professor Herf's work, from National Socialist Europe to parts of the Middle East, and then those forms of anti-Semitism spread. And as the works of people like Isabella Taborowski have shown, particularly in the case of the Abbas dissertation, Abbas wrote that dissertation in the Soviet Union at a time when the Soviets promoted through international propaganda schemes and domestic propaganda, virulent, dangerous forms of anti-Zionist anti-Semitism that also included trafficking and Holocaust denial. So the origins of it came from the Cold War policies and practices, to a certain extent, the Cold War policies and practices of a regime that no longer exists, a regime that sought to undermine democracy, sought to undermine solidarity in the Western world, sought to undermine the state of Israel throughout its history. And there's no acknowledgement of that. So if we're going to root out Holocaust denial 
no matter where it lies, we have to begin with its origins. And those origins vary from time and place. Some of the origins lie in the National Socialist Experiment, right? The Nazis had all manner of terms and actual formal programs to cover up their crimes. Some of those origins lie with certain French intellectuals. Certain origins lie with American public figures in the 1940s. And some of the origins lie in the Soviet Union. We need to know the enemy top to bottom if we're ever going to deal with it. I want to move on to distortion. And I'm curious if the kind of distortion that we're talking about that is common now on social media and in in conversations, especially those around October 7th, does it tend to be a far-right phenomenon, far-left, pretty universal? So Holocaust distortion, the trends have shown, cuts across all ideological, social, cultural, political, and religious barriers. Now, certain forms are more common to certain groups at certain times. The forms of distortion that minimize the number of persons murdered during the Holocaust, for example, or claim that the Jewish people did something to deserve the Holocaust, those have typically been more common on the far political right and among some religious conservative extremists. Some of the forms that suggest that The Jewish people make use of the Holocaust for all manner of gain, everything from, you know, funding to guilt to special protections to justifying the state of Israel. Those pretty much cut across the left-right divide. Certain leftist forms of Holocaust distortion through anti-Semitism that have emerged at least since the Second Intifada take the form of, you know, the Jewish people using the Holocaust to justify the state of Israel or the policies of the Israeli government. But by and large, distortion of the Holocaust is unfortunately a phenomenon that is everyday. It even takes the form of particular types of commercial distortion, people engaging in it without any ideological agenda. One only need think of the unfortunate situation that seems to happen every couple of years where and Frank Halloween costumes go up for sale in the U.S. or in the U.K., or when Chinese-made ornaments depicting Auschwitz-Birkenau become up for sale on Amazon, or even, I think it's still possible today, to buy model kits and toys of Hitler and his inner circle. People who make the subject so blasé and everyday that it loses its power. That's a different form of distortion stripped of ideology. All right, October 7th distortion at first. I'm an historian, so I like to have a wealth of evidence before me. But based on early observations and research, those forms of distortion and denial that emerged often enough were associated with the Western world, largely the political left, and certain forms of protest movements that either shared affinity with the Palestinian cause or would-be affinity with the Palestinian cause. But what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is that is no longer the plaything only of the political left. We have seen some people on the extreme right begin engaging in similar rhetoric. Now, there's no sympathy being given to the Palestinians in that rhetoric, but claims that the state of Israel is making too much use of this, or the Jewish diaspora is using this for all manner of bad things. So it is beginning to cut across those boundaries that we've seen. 
The Shoah Foundation holds the world's largest video collection of Holocaust survivor and witness testimonies, and it has now begun collecting video testimonies of the atrocities committed by Hamas terrorists against the Israelis on October 7th. Why? So I assumed the leadership role here at the Shoah Foundation about 13 months ago, and I was brought here to establish a robust initiative focused on anti-Semitism. Shoah Foundation was created as a platform so that the voices of Holocaust survivors could echo for future generations and moreover lead to a better world. In a sense, we engage in wish fulfillment. The survivors gave us their testimonies to bring about the world they wanted. And when you get right down to it, survivors wanted only a few things. One of those things, I guarantee you, was a world without anti-Semitism. So we have an obligation to those survivors to try, especially before the last of the survivors leave us, to create the conditions to bring about that better future. So we had been developing this laboratory, this multi-subject expert initiative that would deal with anti-Semitism as it's existed since 1945. And we were going to start, and we are starting, with the development of a massive collection. Our minimum goal is 10,000 testimonies of anti-Semitic violence in a variety of forms. We broke that into five categories. One of those categories was the survivors of anti-Semitic terror attacks. Several months ago, we thought, all right, we're going to focus on this. Our starting point is going to be the 1994 bombings in Buenos Aires. We're going to work our way forward. And then October 7th happened. So we had to swing into action immediately. Within 12 days, we had secured the first testimony on the ground. This was possible thanks in part to our already existing work in Israel and our strong partnerships with Israeli institutions, including the National Library of Israel and Yad Vashem and others, Ghetto Fighters House as well. And very quickly, utilizing our on-the-ground teams, our partnerships, we began to acquire testimonies using the same methodology that we did in the 1990s when we started taking Holocaust survivor testimonies. And a few things became readily apparent to us. One is just the simple tragedy and the painful irony of this endeavor. In the 1990s, when a survivor came and gave us her testimony, the first thing you would see is a sheet, the survivor's name, the date of the interview, the interviewer's name, some basic information. And we're seeing the same thing when we look at survivors of the October 7th attacks. There's true tragedy there. Uh, we've secured, as of today's recording, a little more than 250 of these testimonies. They will be put online for free. I think we have about 70 or 80 online right now. We have a partnership with some media partners, including Tablet Magazine here in the United States, to make them even more available. And they will be made available to our Israeli partners for use because this is the history of Israel and, and its people now. But our goal is to use these here so that we can begin training people from a major university how to understand anti-Semitism in all its forms and how to build resilience against it how to research the subject on a deeper level, how to write better journalism around the subject, and how to respond and recognize that the victim of anti-Semitism is not some faceless person or 
somebody who lived eight or so decades ago, somebody today, just like you, just like me, just like our children or our parents. Before we share a clip of one of the survivors from the Shoah Foundation's October 7th testimony collection, I want to give listeners a chance to turn down the volume or fast forward. These testimonies are incredibly painful to listen to. And this is a portion of testimony from Shaley Atari Winner from Kibbutz Kfar Aza, who hid for 26 hours with her newborn daughter. Her husband, Yahav, was killed. The texting in the, in the group started to be in the WhatsApp group. I hear the shooting next to me. They're shooting outside of my window. And then we heard people were asking, are you sure? I think they're inside our village. And then me and Yav heard, tal, tal, tal. And a lot of, like a group of terrorists, bunch, were like making a group outside of our window. I remember them, there's footsteps on the grass outside of the window on autumn leaves, like autumn leaves cracking. And I understand they're so close. And we changed to sign language. The agreement was, you're holding the door, I'm with the baby. This was the agreement, and we kept quiet. Even the dog was quiet, so I was sleeping. He tried to record them outside of our window, saying hello to each other, laughing, tal, tal. But he didn't make, he didn't make, I mean, in the middle of the voice message, they already opened the window, not the door. We thought they will come in from the door, but they suddenly opened the window of the safe room. So they took the blinds out, and then they moved the iron rail, and I saw a hand inside my bedroom. And I knew that hand didn't come to shake my hand, like we both... But the, 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 it, it was so fast that we didn't have a lot of time to say goodbye. It was like... And he opened the glass of the safe room window and tried to push the iron rail. Oh, gosh. They tried to push the iron rail against them. And in, in one moment, I just took Shia on my hands and ran away with no shoes, phone, nothing. I just like, and I'm disabled in my legs, so I'm limping. So the running was not uh, fast like a able-bodied person. But I, I did it as fast as I could because they were shooting at us. voices and the stories of the survivors are always so difficult to hear, and even the bravery it takes to recount these horrors is so hard to fathom. We're talking about people who dare to deny these horrors happened. This collection serves to counter those attempts, right? That's correct. That's correct. As we all know, the Israeli government pulled together GoPro and other footage captured from the terrorists. There's a lot of security camera footage. A number of teams have gone in, including a group at Reichman University, doing 3D scans of the atrocity sites. The physical record of this is astounding. So far, I've heard different numbers. I don't want to give a precise number. But let's say tens of thousands of videos have been made. And we're only just beginning to understand it. We're going to share another clip here. This is Maur Moravia a 37-year-old father of two, on returning to Kibbutz Kafaraza after the October 7th terror attacks. I've been there twice, 
I went on specific missions to bring people uh, certain things. There's this elderly couple, they forgot the, the, uh, his hearing aids. So I went back to bring it to him. I went to bring some family albums to, to a family that lost their parents. They, they didn't have anything, so they, they want to, to grieve. So, you know, we have all these little missions to bring things with sentimental value or things people need. So if, they, if it survived, you know, they, when I went to bring the albums, they told me, in our parents' bedroom, we, the, there is a white shirt that means the word to us. Can you please go search it? And I'm with them on the phone and I walk into their parents' bedroom and there is nothing. I, you know, I, I never thought that when a house, uh, there, there is a fire, things can get, just turn into ash. There is nothing. There is no closet. There is no bed. There is nothing. Just floor and everything is black. And I can't tell them on the phone, you know, they burned your parents' house. They burned them. I don't know if they burned them alive or not. I, have, I, I, I can't know, but they burned them. And I can't tell them on the phone. They don't know. And I say, I can't find it. I can't find it. And I say, no, it's on the left side of the closet. And how can I, I kinda, can I tell those guys, you know, they're, they're my friends, they're my neighbors. How can I tell them they burned your parents' bedroom? They burned all your memories. You know, when people die, you want to go to the place they were living. You want to smell their clothes, to have that little moment with yourself. And there is just nothing. But the best way to counter denial and disinformation is to hear it from those who lived it, to see their experiences. And will that convince everybody? No. Those who don't want to be convinced, those who have an agenda, will always be a problem. Our job is to make sure that we have this content and are reaching audiences who are vulnerable to being radicalized, vulnerable to becoming extremists before that happens. And we're seeing that happen in a variety of spaces anyway right now. So we have a, we have a big job to do. Rob, you mentioned being there at USC, and our December 14th episode was tied to the congressional inquiry of university presidents regarding anti-Semitism on college campuses. Have the students and faculty at USC taken advantage of the Shoah Foundation's presence there on campus? I mean, it seems like such a great resource as long as people are actually utilizing it. Yes, I'm very proud to be at USC, especially right now. The university president has been in regular contact and dialogue, not, not just with us, but with Hillel, with Chabad, with the Jewish students, with the Religious Life Center, with faculty across this massive, massive university of 22 schools. Beyond that, the Shoah Foundation has been in dialogue with different departments, including the School of Social Work, right before we started this podcast. Now, it had been planned in advance of October 7th, but a couple weeks after uh, October 7th, we here at USC, along with our partners, and Hillel International, AJC, the local federation, brought university administrators from across the West Coast to our campus for one reason, to learn about anti-Semitism and how to respond to it within a university environment. Now, we haven't crowed about this. We're just doing the work. 
But I think the fact that we have strong leadership from the top, we have a peerless institution in the USC Shoah Foundation here, literally in the middle of the campus, has protected us against some of the unfortunate trends that we've seen on campuses in other parts of the country. I mean, I could see being in any kind of a protest environment and hearing vile things come from the students' mouths and pointing to your facility and saying, walk over there, <laughs> go in there. No, yeah, well, and, and to a certain extent that has happened. Um, you know, we do have regular outreach to students. Over the summer, as part of the buildup to our anti-Semitism programming, we took a significant number of the student athletes from USC's track and field team a track and field team that has more Olympic gold medals than most countries, uh, to our offices for a week of training on how to understand anti-Semitism in all of its forms. And while they were here, they you know, met with local Jewish community representatives, of course, and our staff gave lectures, as you would expect. We brought in virtual or by remote uh, a very well-known survivor of the Holocaust, Shal Ladani. Now, Mr. Ladani, for those who don't know, is one of the most remarkable and sweetest people I've ever met. Uh, he's a survivor uh, of the Holocaust who made his way to Israel, became an Israeli athlete. As he told me, he felt he wasn't a fast enough marathon runner, so he became a speedwalker and entered and became part of the Israeli Olympic team in 1972. And he was one of the first athletes to escape the dormitories during that horrible, horrible tragedy. So he spoke to these athletes in his sport. After that, we took them to Poland, but we didn't take them to Poland just for the reason everybody would expect. We started in Krakow, where the students learned about a thousand years of Jewish life and culture, from its origins to its challenges to its almost renaissance today to learn about something more than just the Shoah. They did, of course, visit Auschwitz-Birkenau to learn more about the Holocaust. And they walked away from this program more aware of the anti-Semitism in their midst. One student uh, said something along the lines of, I didn't realize I was engaging in distortion of the Holocaust until I took part in this program. And some of these students, after October 7th, started emailing us again. I'm hearing this. I'm hearing that. How do I respond to my friends? So our staff is working with them. And this is an important leadership group. This is a program that we have to continue engaging in. It will have an effect now, but I guarantee in a generation, it will have such impact that we might start turning the tide because things have gotten so out of control in every other way. Rob, thank you so much for joining us and, and having this conversation. I appreciate it, Manya. Thank you. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for my conversation with Liz Hirsch-Neftali, whose great-niece, four-year-old Abigail Moore Eden, returned home during a pause in fighting in November. The youngest American citizen to have been kidnapped and held by Hamas Abigail and her siblings are now orphans after Hamas murdered their parents. Hear about her family's continuing effort to bring the remaining 129 captives home to their loved ones. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. 
You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.